For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Ah, welcome to Herd Tell. It's July the 5th. That makes it a Tuesday, year of our Lord, 2022, continues to roll along. Hope you had a great 4th of July weekend. If you're here in America, if you're part of our worldwide audience, hope you enjoyed the weekend wherever you and yours are and your Monday wasn't too awful bad, especially you folks in Britain who had to work. Thanks for the day off for blowing that revolution thing. Sure, appreciate it. Just kidding. We love our British friends. If you missed our 4th of July special with our buddy Ben Harris, make sure you go back and watch it. That was a blast. Today's show, though, a lot of business to take care of. Uh, We're going to go over to Germany, economic news out of Germany. Germany is the economic engine of the EU, and the news is not good. We'll cover that. Uh, Out in California, uh, we're going to talk a little criminal justice reform today on the show anyway. So this is apropos. Uh, Governor Gavin Newsom has issued a pardon in a very high-profile case that a lot of criminal justice reform advocates have been keeping their eye on. We'll touch on that a little bit later on. Our last segment of the program, we always try to go to a charity thing or something uplifting or good. Uh, What's more 4th of July than muscle cars and spending exorbitant amounts of capitalistic American money on them? Well, if you do it for charity, especially in Las Vegas, a great story out there of millions of dollars that have gone to charity out there and another $500,000 just over the weekend. A great guest today returning to the program, Joshua Crawford, uh, Pegasus Institute out in Louisville, Kentucky, a Young Voices contributor. He is an attorney. Usually we have him on talking things like criminal justice reform, police reform, policing. We're going to get into all that with him today also, especially updating the things that have been going on in Louisville over the last few years. However, uh, today he's also got a piece out writing about fatherhood and dads and how important that is. So we'll get into that. Joshua Crawford, Louisville, Kentucky, on the program today. Thrilled to have him back on the program. A great guest. But let's start with uh, January 6th. The committee uh, has been getting all kinds of headlines. Back last week, we were covering other things. We haven't touched on the January 6th hearings a lot other than in the big picture realm because you can get lost in the minutia of what they're doing. Uh, we're all grown folks. If you want the details of that, dig in. There's plenty of stuff there. We've been pretty plain on where we think this is going. This is going to be a lot of sound and fury. The January 6th committee cannot do anything but issue recommendations. DOJ would have to actually go forth and do things with that. Even with its subpoena power, it still has to work through the court system to get those subpoenas enforced, as we've seen with the contempt charges that have gotten handed out, things like this. There's a relationship there between DOJ, which is the actual legal part, and the committee, which is the political and oversight, and they are investigating, and they do have a role, and they can do that, but it's problematic for a couple of reasons. One is Congress is both the victim here, and they're also got some people that are alleged to be 
partially responsible, if not conspirators in the thing that happened. That doesn't make for a good environment for investigating anything. Congressional committees are not where you go for a reckoning. Com congressional committees are where you go for sometimes you can get good information. And there's some information here that we need to glean out, but it's also mostly for show and it's also for loud and it's also for reasons to get information out in the public. It's not for criminal cases and it's not to get you a reckoning and it's not to get you justice. That's not what you're going to get at a, a committee meeting. That's for DOJ to do and DOJ has a different agenda. Let's go to the Hill real quick because this is going to illustrate big picture-wise what's going on here. Um, on the Sunday shows, which I do not watch and my life has gotten immensely better since I skipped them because all they are are remixes, uh, Representative Zoe Lofgren, a Democrat of California who sits on the select committee, said she is, quote, surprised by the federal prosecutor's reaction. I'm reading from the Hill here, so take it for a grain of salt. Surprised by federal prosecutor's reaction to the testimony given before the panel this week by Cassidy Hutchinson who was previously an aide to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, who is neck deep in all of this hot mess. She says, this is Lofgren, that federal prosecutors working on the Justice Department's January 6th investigation felt blindsided. After watching Hutchinson's testimony, several officials spoke to the newspaper saying that prior to her testimony, prosecutors had not been given transcripts or videos of her past interviews. Hutchinson spoke to the panel investigators behind closed doors four times before testifying in the public hearing. This is a quote from Lofgren. I was surprised that the prosecutors were surprised. What are they doing over there? They have a much greater opportunity to enforce their subpoenas than our legislative committee does. Asked if she thought it was a fair characterization that the House panel had blindsided the Justice Department, she said, no, we are, this is a quote, we are not an arm of the Department of Justice. We're a legislative committee. They have subpoena power. They could subpoena Ms. Hutchinson. I'm surprised they've not done so. We have interviewed her four times. I think that's public knowledge at this point. And the fourth interview was very compelling. Lofgren's comments come after Hutchinson's explosive testimony. Uh, let's stop here. Big picture, there's something brewing here. And it's brewing because everybody involved here knows that the clock is ticking here. Midterm elections are coming. The Republicans are probably going to get uh, the House of Representatives. That's going to be the end of this select committee. Now, a couple things to keep in mind here. Um, what they're doing now is... They're trying to get all their information out. They're trying to get the public awareness as much as they possibly can. So they're bringing out the most explosive testimony they have. And they've got an end game in mind. What is the legacy of the January 6th committee going to be? From the very beginning, there has been bickering between the committee members and the Department of Justice. And Lofgren elsewhere has hinted at, I'd said, as long with some other committee meetings, that the Department of Justice is dragging its feet. Now, there's been over 800 people charged in January 6th. About 160, some of those cases have been adjudicated. The rest are working their way through the court system. The DOJ had a lot to do with those. They've been prosecuting people left, right, and center. They've been bringing all sorts of charges. They just haven't been bringing them against the political part of this because the political part of this gets sticky really quick. I have been very clear on this show from the beginning. I have done it in my writing morally and ethically responsibility for January 6th falls on people like Donald Trump and his staff. But if you're going to start talking charges, that's criminal, that's a different beast. And you have to get a very high bar for things like, what are you going to charge them with? You're going to charge them conspiracy? You're going to charge them with sedition? You're going to charge them with treason like some people online scream about? Those are very high bar things. They're very specific legal terms, not what we're throwing around online. And you got to have evidence to charge it. Merrick Garland 
whatever you think of him politically and the stuff with him being a justice was a judge for a long time. He's a very sharp man. He knows how the law works. They're not going to throw out charges for people just for the fun of it. Now, there's going to be immense political pressure on Merrick Garland to do so with some of these recommendations, if the committee even recommends it. But what we really have here, folks, they're already jockeying for position for when this ends. The DOJ is going to blame the committee for getting in the way. The committee is going to blame the DOJ for getting in their way. The fact that they're doing it now, publicly, and they're not really hiding it, tells you right now that they know the clock is ticking on this whole thing and that nobody's going to be happy with the results. So they've already started with the blame game. They've already started with CYA. That's never good when you're in the middle of what you're supposed to be doing as a serious matter. You're already trying to assuage how it's going to look when it comes to an end. These folks do not seem to know exactly how they want to land this plane. I've been pretty clear. I think this committee was a mistake. This should have been a special prosecutor. This is not how you get a reckoning or justice. This is how you get a big old mess on top of everything else. There's good, useful information coming out of this. That's not what I'm saying. It's not one of these conspiracy theories. The Republicans chose not to play along, so don't give me the kangaroo court mess. But it's not a court of law. If you're going to start talking about actually prosecuting people, that's a very different standard, and people need to understand that. More Hertel right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Going back to Hertel. Okay, let's go back overseas. Let's talk a little economics, German economics to be specific. Now, we've talked on this show before. When you're talking about the EU, you got to start with Germany. Germany's the engine that lets that puppy run. Uh, they are the economic powerhouse of continental Europe. They're also what funds Brussels uh, stuff when they want to be the EU and all that stuff. That only happens with countries like Germany funding it through their economic might. How goes Germany is how Europe's going. You pay very close attention to the German economy, and the news ain't good, folks. Uh, from The Guardian, quote, the Germany has recorded its first monthly trade deficit since 1991. Uh, you remember, that goes all the way back to reunification before. Uh, amid soaring inflation and supply chain disruption weighing on the country's industrial base, Figures from the country's statistical agencies show a surge in the value of imports and modest decline in exports had pushed Germany's largest economy into a trade deficit in May. The monthly deficit was the country's first since the year after German reunification. Now, two things were going on during reunification. They had to absorb East Germany, which obviously was economically uh, behind West Germany. So that was an economic hit. The other thing that happened in the early 90s was the United States did a massive military drawdown at the end of the Cold War, which pulled a lot of troops and a lot of funding 
and a lot of shared aid out of Germany at the same time they were absorbing East German folks and the East German infrastructure that had to be brought up to speed. That was a double whammy as far as economic things. They weathered it eventually, but that was what was going on in the early 90s in Germany. That's how troubling this news is. Um, exports fell by half a percentage point while imports increased 2.7%. Compared with the same months a year earlier, exports were up almost 12% while the values of imports surged almost 30%. Germany's dominant manufacturing base has faced disruptions from global supply chain problems caused by the pandemics and lockdowns in China. Soaring energy prices and weaker demand for goods is also hitting demand. Figures published on Friday show manufacturing output across the Eurozone fell in June for the first time since the depths of the initial lockdowns in 2020 and a sign of worsening economic conditions across the single currency block, that's the Euro block. Uh, according to the latest trade figures, prices for imports such as energy, food, and industrial components rose by more than 30% in May. The figure comes as Russia's war in Ukraine pushes up energy prices across Europe, driving up inflation and affecting the trade balance of countries dependent on oil and gas imports for much of their energy needs. The UK's current account deficit, which measures cross-border trade and financial flows, surged in the first quarter. Although largely due to the soaring costs of fuel imports, it also comes as many British exporters grapple with Brexit, disruptions from the border, and reams of new and confusing red tape. In contrast, Russia's current account surplus more than tripled in the first four months of the year. Um, Germany's trade surplus has now evaporated. This has caused Vicentin, the chief of the Eurozone economy, thanks mainly to soaring imports offsetting otherwise decent momentum in exports. Looking ahead, we expect, suspect the external balance will remain in deficit over the summer. And winter is coming, folks. Watch carefully countries like Germany that are starting to suffer real economic problems. Winter is going to be a big deal with the energy prices coming out of Russia. There's going to be immense pressure to try to get some kind of negotiated settlement to the Ukraine war out of Russia so they can get back to business as usual. Keep a close, close eye on Germany. Uh, the Schultz machine, Olaf Schultz, who is now in charge of Germany, being a little bit duplicitous, got to watch both hands with him. He's saying one thing, doing another, and his economic pressure is going to be immense as winter starts to loom. Keep an eye on Germany for all the things going on in Europe. A lot of cross streams, folks. More Hertel right after this. <laughs> Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, it's been a minute since he's here, but he's back, and we're thrilled to have him. Uh, Joshua Crawford, he's the executive director of the Pegasus Institute out in Louisville, Kentucky. Fine city that's had a lot of stuff going on, so public policy folks have been very, very busy right there in your own backyard, my friend. He's also an attorney, uh, talks a lot about things like criminal justice reform, societal reform. Going to talk a little fatherhood with him today, though. How are you, friend? Good to see you back. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. What got you on the fatherhood thing? It, 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 obviously, you're a son, so we all have our own th thoughts about it. I got to assume reading through it, and you're talking about some of your own memories and fishing with your dad and stuff like that. Did Which way did it start? Was it a fatherhood thing, and you went back to your own fatherhood for that, or was it your father, and then you went to it, do you think, when you went to write about the subject? Yeah, I, 
my my sort of thesis for the subject or really where I started was my dad. And, you know, we we did not have a tremendous amount uh, growing up. We were sort of lower working class and and sometimes below that. But uh, my dad always sort of worked his butt off, uh, got up early in the morning, uh, got to work, got home late, but at the same time, always made it to football games and baseball games and stuff like that. And so now as a father myself, uh, I've spent a lot of time with, over the last year reflecting on what about my dad made me who I am and, and how I want to do those things. And I'm blessed to have sort of more resources than we did when I was a kid. And so how can I make sure that my kids don't grow up spoiled and stuff like that? But, but really thinking about my dad was, was where it all started. Yeah, Joshua Crawford joining us. The piece is called America Needs Dads More Than Ever. Of course, it was a Father's Day thing. We're kind of looping back to it because after the week we've all had, we need to talk about some building block stuff like this. I, I thought about it that way, too, because, you know, my own father, who we, we were the same way. My parents were both school teachers. We weren't rich or anything, but I didn't know it because we were, you know, pretty comfortable. I didn't realize a double wide wasn't supposed to be, you know, a prerogative. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a nice place to live. It didn't bother me one little bit. Um, I think of my own father's work ethic and how that's always uh, affected me. And it's something as I've gotten older, I'm 42 now, and, you know, I've got two adult children, two high school kids. It really seeps into my thinking the older I get of and I've learned it the hard way through mistakes I'm not going to pretend like I've been a great father you really start understanding how much of parenting is more modeling and more just stuff that they see than stuff that you you know you can sit down and say I'm going to do this and this you can't fool your kids man like they see everything you do and that model behavior is really where those thoughts of our own fathers and things like that that's what really gets imprinted more than like an idea or a concept or things that we may talk about to improve fatherhood, doesn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, one of the things that gets said uh, oftentimes is that you don't have to be a great dad to be a good dad, right? Uh, so much of it is is just showing up, just being there, just trying to do the right thing, um, just being able to to play, you know, man-to-man defense as opposed to, to having to go zone, so to speak. And so, um, there's a lot about uh, my time. I'm sure I will reflect back later in life on, on my time as a dad and be like, oh, I wish I did that differently or I really wish I did that differently. Um, but the, the crux of the piece and, and the crux of the importance of having an involved father is really having somebody there uh, and having somebody who cares and, and can model some of that behavior. You touch on it in the piece. The numbers are kind of striking. Uh, 34% of kids in a single parent home, that's double since 68 83% of these homes, the parents has an absentee father of one shade or another that comes out to something like 18 million kids in homes without dad. I want to preface that with, there is nothing in the world I respect more than a single mother. So that's no, you know, dispersion on any right. of them because God bless them. Uh, yep. But those are, those are pretty shocking numbers when you start talking about raising children and the lack of children without a father, that kind of gets to the heart of the problem because this isn't like a policy solution where we're going to pass one law and it fixes it, or we set a regular, this is generational type stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. There, there are two major problems with fatherhood in America right now. The first is what you've hit on, which is that the trend is going the wrong direction. We are, we are having more and more kids in father absent homes, uh, not less. And, and that's a trajectory that's been pretty constant since the late 1960s. And the second is that uh, virtually every social ill that you can think of, 
from teenage pregnancies to low academic achievement and including and especially public safety outcomes are negatively impacted by not having that father in the home. And to the point that you made, I mean, single moms do heroic work, but from a statistical standpoint, uh, kids who grow up in that environment are just much more likely to find themselves experiencing many, many social ills. And just speak to that on a practical level, because you are an attorney, you've been uh, a prosecutor. The criminal justice system is absolutely awash in in kids. And I'm going to say kids because that's that's where you lose them. We know statistically that 16 to 25 year age range when they first start bumping up into adult law enforcement. Um, man, just almost all of them, some kind of a bad home environment type situation, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a, a majority of street gang members come from single parent homes um, and even the sort of uh, worst of the worst type offenses. When you think about like mass public shootings, uh, 75% of the, the 25 most recent high profile mass public shootings came from, from either father absent or abusive homes. Um, that's not to say that if you don't have a dad in the home, uh, sort of throw in the towel, everything is, is going to be bad. Um, it's just much more likely that things are going to be difficult and that you're going to find yourself uh, in a situation where in searching for that kind of familial situation, you find yourself either involved with a street gang or involved with a group of kids that you shouldn't be involved with. And so we can sort of cut the head off the snake with some of this stuff if we uh, we address it this way. You also wrote, though, that the good news to that is for as bad as it is for the kids that don't have, you know, good home situations, the data also says the reverse is true. And we also know now, you know, let's, you know, we just live in a society where the home structure is not as traditional as it used to be. It doesn't have to be that biological dad, you know, nuclear family thing. If you have strong parents in the home, the data is overwhelming, whatever form that takes, and it may take a non-traditional form, that sets a lot of these kids up on a path to success, and the statistics bear that out, don't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's there's the ideal here, right? And the ideal is two parents in the home, both involved in raising the kids, uh, so on and so forth. But there are then sort of shades of gray from there. And so if there's something about uh, a particular relationship that didn't allow for that relationship to flourish between a mom and a dad or, or parents otherwise, but the parent who's not in the home is meaningfully involved in that child's life in some way. If there are, you know, uncles or family friends or coaches or things like that who are involved in a kid's life in a meaningful way, all of that can can help offset some of that. Yeah. And let's talk about that for just a second, because, you know, again, you come from that background of criminal justice and you study that policy wise. There's a societal element to this because we say, well, there's not a father in the home. But I, I think back to my own childhood, like, we had really strong elderly people around us all the time. Like, I mean, just really strong character, older folk. You can have family, community, um, civic organizations, churches, sports teams can do this. Uh, music teams can do this. I got a kid in band. It's like this. The band, you know, the band becomes their family. There can be, it's not an ideal situation, but society and community and family, they really can stop gag some of this if there's those strong, adult presences around these kids, isn't there? That's that's absolutely true. And one of the unfortunate things is that at the same time, this trend in fatherhood has persisted and we've seen more and more kids growing up in, in a house without a dad. You're seeing sort of these breakdown of some of these civic institutions. You're seeing church attendance uh, shrink. You're seeing uh, civic association uh, participation shrink, uh, things like Kiwanis clubs and, and stuff like that. Uh, you're seeing rotary clubs, you're seeing less and less attendance with 
Um, and you're seeing this sort of general breakdown of, of community to a certain extent. And so uh, one can certainly step in and, and help offset the other, but unfortunately, a lot of the trends in both of those things uh, are headed in the wrong direction. Yeah, Josh Crawford joining us. All right, here's the hard question though. What do we do about it? We already touched on it a little bit. Is this a policy thing? Is this a societal thing? Is it a cultural thing? Uh, you know, parenting from, from the way I understand it, the best on a lot of levels is, you know, fatherhood's a mentorship type thing. I don't know that you can really legislate that. I know we can do things to kind of put an environment around it. Is it all of the above? Is it none of the above? Is there shades in that? What do you think the actual solution on trying to improve this is other than just person to person trying to make this as best we can? Yeah, it's, it's all of the above. The, the first thing is to make sure that as a matter of public policy, we don't disincentivize fatherhood and marriage, right? There's some things that we do via welfare programs that, that encourage uh, single parenthood. Um, and <clears throat> what are the things that we, as a matter of public policy, can do proactively? Uh, one of the things that have been evaluated in sort of a comprehensive way are these sort of fatherhood programs for people who find themselves uh, in the criminal justice system as defendants. And uh, what the reviews have found is that when, when properly implemented, those programs can, can meaningfully uh, improve uh, participation in a kid's life, as well as things like welfare payments and stuff like that. So on the public policy side, there's all of that. But, but the big thing here is that, that dads need to step up. It is a, a cultural and a social and a societal question. And part of that is if you've got a friend who's a dad who's not involved in that kid's life at all and, and you read this piece, then it behooves you to say like, hey man, like let's go see your kid or you know, like let's go to their baseball game or whatever. And part of it is just that sort of social pressure from friends. The, the, expectation, the expectation on moms uh, has always been like, you have to raise your kids, right? There seems to be this shift as it relates to dads of like, yeah, you gotta provide some financial support, but there's no expectation that you're meaningfully involved. That has to change. How much is this is a generational shift right now? Because we, I'm a little bit generation gap because my, my mom was the youngest of nine kids and my parents didn't have me till their mid thirties. They're in their late mid seventies. Uh, my dad's 76 now. So I'm a little bit gender gapped for my age cohort on paper, but you know, we talk about the boomers all the time, but that's a huge cohort that is starting to pass off the scene. Now they're getting older generationally changed. Now this new generation coming up, cause I see it with my old kids, they're more online. They have wider friend networks due to technology. I think there's going to be a big generational change in how we look at parenting going forward. Do you see that too when you sit down and look at this like, hey, you know, the Andy Griffith opening where you're walking down the fishing pole, that's probably an iPad kind of situation now. Is there a generational thing going on here too where some of us are all just going to have to adapt a little bit? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Whenever my wife got pregnant, um, I bought a tremendous number of books <laughs> on parenting and you know there's a, a number of uh, the sort of like standard you know do's and don'ts and milestones and all that kind of stuff but I was I was sort of blown away by the number of books that deal specifically with this question of like kids and technology because so I'm I'm 32 I largely grew up in an era of cell phones and the internet and stuff like that but it wasn't really until high school that that was pervasive for me well, when my daughter is, I mean, daughter now, I mean, if, if, if she wants to access the internet and things like that via cell phone, I mean, she's, she's 14 months, she can't do it competently, but uh, that technology is all around her. And so there's a, a wide array of books uh, and sort of prognostications on how you 
interact with your kids with those things and the the sort of double-edged sword of those things, right? They can be a, a way to let that iPad parent for you, which is a, a huge mistake, or it could be the kind of thing that we do. My parents live in Massachusetts. And so we can uh, FaceTime on the iPad with my daughter and my parents and they can see each other in a way that they normally wouldn't. And so that is definitely changing the game. Yeah. The one that will get a lot of parents and they got me is when your teenagers start Google fact checking, whatever you say right on the spot, that's a fun time to get to, but just the world we live in now, they can look it up immediately. Uh, Joshua Crawford joining us. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to put his lawyer hat back on uh, criminal justice reform. A lot of stuff going on. We're going to update since the last time he's been here, there's been a lot of stuff going on in his hometown, Louisville, Kentucky. We're going to get an update on that. Some of the things he's been talking about, some of the things they're working on at the Pegasus Institute, Joshua Crawford joining us again right after the break on her. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Really sharp guy. We always enjoy having him on the program, Joshua Crawford. Okay, last time we talked to you, you were dealing with a lot of stuff going on in Louisville. Uh, just update us real quick because people know some of the headline splashy stuff. You live there, so when the national news comes and they leave after a week or so, you're still in that community. What's going on in Louisville since all that splashy stuff over the last two years? Just kind of update us a little bit on what your city's doing and how y'all doing. And did we get anything from all the noise or is it still the same old problems? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, Louisville since 2015 has seen uh, pretty substantial increases in its homicides um, and non-fatal shootings. A lot of that is is gang and street group related. That was sort of put on steroids uh, over the last two years. Uh, But the particularly concerning thing is that Louisville, like a number of other large cities across the country, has experienced a giant surge in carjackings in the last two years. Uh, Our carjackings have gone up uh, 206% uh, 2018 to 2020. Again, a lot of that is is, uh, gang and street group related. But what is particularly difficult uh, from a public policy standpoint and from a societal standpoint is 51% of the arrestees for carjacking in Louisville are juveniles. They're kids under 18. Uh, And of that percentage of juveniles, uh, nearly a quarter of them are 14 and younger. So you've got kids that can't even legally drive, can't get a driver's license if they wanted to, putting a gun in somebody's chest and stealing their car. And so that's a big part of of what we're dealing with right now. I am a a part of the the governance committee for the group violence intervention project that is going on here. Uh, I think that that has been a positive development for the city and has frankly kept things from being worse than they were. Uh, It sort of moves law enforcement resources to the worst of the worst, to to the people that you want those things focused on. Um, And I'm hopeful that as we continue that effort, we'll uh, we'll see some improvement. You've been doing a lot of media about this, uh, Joshua Crawford joining us. So let's just cut down through it because here's the problem. We have the social media, news media talking head side of uh, politics and criminal justice where it's always scream about crime because that gets votes and that gets money and you send money to. We understand that there's that side of all this. But you've been talking about in a lot of media interviews lately about what's really causing violent crime. You're never going to get separated because of human nature, because we just know violent crime is always going to have a spotlight on it. It's like you point at that and then, oh, that's what's wrong. 
where's this actually coming from? Because, you know, we have economic unconcerns. We have all other things going on. There doesn't seem to be one real cause here. So where's this current wave of violent crime coming from? And how much of it is kind of social media, news media, just being able to hone in on this every time it happens now? Yeah, so um, the American people generally will answer the question, is crime increasing in the affirmative, whether crime is increasing or decreasing? Uh, unfortunately, though, over the last several years, when they answer that in the affirmative, they have been correct because uh, crime, especially violent crime, especially the most serious violent crimes, uh, again, murders, shootings, carjackings, things like that, have been increasing uh, uh, quite considerably. And so uh, there's a, a truism there, but, but crime concentrates among a remarkably small percentage of your population. Typically, it's about a half a percent of a city's population that's responsible for about 50% of its violence. Uh, typically, it's about 5% of offenders that are responsible for 50% of your violence. And so it concentrates among a very small group. It tends to be those, those individuals uh, committing crimes against each other within the subcontext of criminal street gangs. What makes the serious violence so tragic is far too often it spills out uh, uh, against innocent bystanders. I mean, here in the city of Louisville, we've had a three-year-old girl executed in broad daylight. We've had a seven-year-old boy shot and killed while sitting at his kitchen table. Uh, we routinely have, have children who end up caught in the crossfire of this. And so there, there is the sort of proverbial, if it bleeds, it leads truism of the news media uh, but unfortunately, we're living through a time period where that is is oftentimes reflecting a reality. And since you just mentioned it, let's talk about that for a second, because like you said, crime is actually a very small criminal, I should say. That's a very small percentage of the population. But how we deal with that small part of the population has a tremendous ripple effect on the rest of society. I know we talk about that in the context of criminal justice or criminal law reform, but just kind of break that down for folks a little bit. It's like, because we just see the headlines and then everybody just wants to sledgehammer the bad guy. And we all get that because there's some truly mm -hmm. horrible people out there. But we also got all the data in the world of just pouring money and punishing everybody. That's not enough, is it? And then when we have waves like this, how do we talk about this in a productive way where we keep our own humanity? We understand that even though we're dealing with bad people, we're still dealing with people. And we actually get some traction instead of just repeating the same cycle over and over again. I know that's a way too big of a question for one answer, but just kind of give us kind of a building block there, because that's really gets to the heart of some of the stuff you guys work on, isn't it? Yeah, the, the answer there is to concentrate resources among your problem populations, right? That's true of law enforcement resources. It's true of social service resources. It's true in, in questions of criminal sentencing, right? Like um, <clears throat> we generally know. Uh, the categories of people that commit these serious offenses in large numbers. They tend to be habitual repeat offenders. Um, they tend to, to escalate their behavior. And again, a lot of it happens within the subcontext of, of criminal street gangs. And so adopting policing practices that reflect that, adopting sentencing practices that reflect that, because, you know, you can have a guy walk into a courtroom who deserves to spend the rest of his life in prison and the very next person who is charged with uh, a different but likewise serious offense who that's not the best disposition for that person. The system has to be nimble enough to address those things. And so if you have sort of broad sweeping mandatory minimums for things, you're going to have some problems with that. But at the same time, making sure that, that law enforcement and prosecutors have the tools needed to to say that is a person who's wreaking havoc in a community and that's the kind of person that we build prisons for and making sure that, that person spends uh, the time that they need there. And the other edge of that two-edged sword, though, is 
the prosecutors and the law enforcement, uh, they need to be held accountable and be the best they can be. We've seen the example, of course, in Uvalde lately. We just saw mm -hmm. uh, up in Flint, Michigan, where the prosecution of the uh, Flint water crisis got uh, thrown out for an overexertion of authority. Those two things have to go together because every case we see, if you don't have police and the prosecutors at their very best, you're not going to be able to do anything about the very worst of society at the same time because it's, it's, it just makes the mess worse. How do we talk about that in a context of, of course, we want to support good police because good police wants to get rid of bad police, every single one of them without exception. How do we hold accountable and get the best out of our public servant side of that instead of just always screaming and pointing at the bad people? Because you got to have both, don't you? Yeah, the, the question is a little bit easier for law enforcement than it is for prosecutors, but I'll address both. Um, interestingly, much like crime in the general population concentrates among a small number of individuals, police misconduct tends to concentrate very highly among a small number of individuals. And so making sure that those individuals are both uh, appropriately reprimanded and then that, that they can't just simply leave a department or be fired from a department and go to another department. That's one of the things that has happened here in Kentucky. If you are uh, essentially fired for misconduct, you now lose your POP certification. And so you can't go be a law enforcement officer anywhere else in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Uh, so that's a positive step forward to hold accountable those individuals who are uh, engaging in, in misconduct. Um, for prosecutors, it's a little bit tougher because uh, the United States Supreme Court gives prosecutors very wide discretion in how they charge, what they charge, what they don't charge. Um, and so what really has to happen in order to hold a prosecutor accountable is for there to be some sort of gross misconduct. Uh, the, the best example of this, which is no longer really a contemporary example, was the, the Duke lacrosse prosecution. Uh, the, that prosecutor was, was held accountable for what was the, just sort of a blatant disregard for evidence of, of being disregard for the truth a crusade against some some factually innocent individuals. And so there are ways to hold prosecutors accountable in those circumstances, but generally speaking, prosecutors are given pretty wide discretion on, on how they charge uh, and if they choose to charge versus not. Yeah, and if you've never seen the ESPN 30 for 30 on, on Will Fork and the Duke lacrosse case, I know it's a sports-related show. You know, the, the lawyers always joke like, well, it's never like the movies. You never have the cross-examination that blows up the case. That one, they really had it. And it was actually a young, untrained lawyer that just unraveled him on the scan. It's an amazing thing. Please go watch it because uh, you will learn very quickly about that case. And there's a lot of implications there. Joshua Crawford joining us real quick. A few minutes we got left. Let folks know what the Pegasus Institute is doing. Uh, we've had you on before. You guys do such good work. Uh, let them know, just kind of dovetail what you're doing with the Pegasus Institute. You're getting a lot of national attention. I know you just talked to Representative Crenshaw here recently. Uh, just update folks on that so they know what it is you're spending a lot of your time on because you're doing some really, really good work, sir. Yes. Oh, I appreciate that. So we're headquartered in Louisville. And for much of our history, we have been primarily focused on state of Kentucky issues, some federal issues and city of Louisville issues. But we've always sort of had that like urban focus, that urban bend to what we do. But because we're located in Kentucky and because uh, the counties in Appalachian, Kentucky are, are sort of so economically depressed and so underserved in, in many ways, we have, I wouldn't say shifted our focus, but we are giving that a lot more attention here right now. And so we have a paper that is gonna be released in the near term on uh, economic development in Appalachia and, and frankly, the lack of economic development in Appalachia since President Johnson's war on poverty. 
uh, a lot of the things that haven't worked there. So that's something for folks to look out for. And in that same vein, uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, a number of weeks ago now uh, printed a piece on uh, something that has really gone sort of unnoticed in the last couple of years, and that has been the increase in violence in rural communities. Uh, a lot of the attention is focused on our urban centers, 30% increase in homicides in American cities, uh, 2019 to 2020. But what the Wall Street Journal analysis found was that there was a 25% increase in homicides in rural communities over that time period. And so we're taking a look at rural communities in Kentucky to see if that trend holds true here uh, and look at some of the reasons that that may be the case. Hey, I'm a West Virginia kid. You don't have to convince me about it. Uh, we have an absolute epidemic with opioids and violence going on right now. And we, we just talked about it with the, uh, the CPS system in West Virginia is so broken right now. They can't even take kids. They had a scandal where they were shipping them off to Pennsylvania, lost track of a guy I grew up with, um, played pickup basketball with Winston Church with. He's a sitting circuit judge now. And I was eating with him and he just kind of shook his head. He, he'd just been on the job like three months. He just shook his head. He's like, I have one case that's mom and the next case is the dad. And I got to send them both away. Now, what do I do? And I know mm -hmm. CPS is shot. You know, this stuff. When you do that, let me know. We will put you on. We will talk about that because that's that's something that's near and dear to me. So I appreciate y'all looking at that um, wide ranging problem. That's not there. You go again. That's I fear that's going to be one of them generational type problems, my friend. It's it. This is mm -hmm. not going to be a policy fix. This is going to take an all of the above, and it's going to take decades, probably, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way that some of these communities have been ravaged by drugs and especially in the era of fentanyl with overdose deaths now um, and <clears throat> new meth, which is old meth, which is sort of a, a lengthy conversation, but the, the methamphetamine that people are using today is, is not the methamphetamine of the 1990s. Uh, it's, a, it's a chemically different substance. It's a more addictive substance and it's a substance that can do in some cases irreparable damage to your brain. And so it's the, the environment is, is very difficult to, to fix some of this stuff. And we'll, somewhere in there, we'll have you on and we'll talk something light too, I promise. But uh, Joshua Crawford, always enjoy the conversation, my friend. Uh, we will definitely be having you back uh, until we get you back on the show. Though, let folks know about your social media and what you're doing so they can follow you between now and then. Yeah, so uh, the website is PegasusKentucky.org, Kentucky spelled all the way out. Um, and then, you know, wherever you do your social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm not personally on Twitter, but the organization is. And so you can find all of our stuff there. Yep. And we got it right there on the lower third graphic. And we will link to all this in the show notes, his piece in National Review on Fatherhood. Please watch, read it. That's a good one to share off with folks, too. Joshua Crawford, sir, always a pleasure talking to you. Look forward to doing it again real, real soon, my friend. Thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. tell while we got uh, criminal justice on the brain let's go out to california governor gasm newsom has issued a bunch of pardons and commutations one of them was a very high profile case that's been kicking around for some time of sarah cruzan now uh this case is a little complicated but uh it's an important one to delve into we don't have the time to hear but we want to bring it to your attention please go read it we will link to it in the show notes you need to read about this case and all the implications thereof. Um, here's the short story on it from LA Times. 
tried as an adult for a crime she committed when she was 16. And there's no doubt about the crime. The issue here is the extenuating circumstances, which we'll get to in just a second. Cruzan was sentenced to 1995 to life in prison for the murder of George Howard in a Riverside motel room. Her prison term was later commuted by then Governor Schwarzenegger to 25 years with the possibility of parole. By the time she was released two years later, she had served more than two decades behind bars. She was part of three dozen people granting pardons and clemencies by the governor this week. Um, but here's where this story got really messy and brings up a lot of issues that are still articulating our way through when we advocate for criminal justice reform these days. Uh, Cruzon was 16 years old when she killed Howard, who she knew as Gigi. Again, this is from the LA Times. And who she said sexually abused her and groomed her for sex work from the age of 11 and put her on the streets at the age of 13. The case against her was troubled from the start, advocates say, as the presiding judge ordered that she be tried as an adult and barred her attorney from introducing evidence at trial of past abuse by Howard. She served 18 years until Newsom's predecessor, Jerry Brown, allowed her release in 2013. By then, she had become a rallying cry for state lawmakers and reform groups focused on reducing what they saw as cruel and unwarranted life sentences for those who had committed their crimes as juveniles. Uh, Lenore Anderson, founder of California's for Safety and Justice, applauded the pardon, but added it's frankly outrageous she was convicted for the length of time in the first place, giving the history of abuse and trafficking. Sarah is one of many thousands of youths who are exploited sexually and commercially who find themselves in the defendant's seat when it's more than obvious that the extreme abuse they were suffering is what was underneath their crime. Uh, reform of the criminal justice system is long overdue, she said, especially when it comes to extreme traumatic stress and the realities of violence and abuse of what many are experiencing. A complicated case, uh, one that now she has a pardon. She doesn't get the years back. Again, there was no question of guilt here. It was a question of why are we giving life sentences to teenagers, uh, especially ones with deep and very troubling, extenuating circumstances. Read about this case on your own. Uh, we will link to it in the show notes. It's an extreme example, but there are other cases like this out there, and it calls into question things that we need to wrestle with. These are hard questions, but we've got to work through them if we're going to make anything better in our criminal justice system. More Hertel right after this. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, July the 4th is coming gone, and what could be more American than spending ungodly amounts of capitalistic money on muscle cars? Well, doing so for charity out in Vegas. Barrett-Jackson Auto Auction uh, had a great 4th of July weekend. This is from Classic Car Journal. More than $49.1 million in total sales, including a 70 Plymouth Hemi Superbird that sold for a world auction record of $1.65 million. 
in total, 663 vehicles were sold, but they also rose a bunch of money for charity. Uh, they had, when we filled the next three days with the exciting auction moments, including the sale of a 2023 Cadillac Escalade V first retail production no number, VIN number 001, which raised $525,000 for charity by itself. Um, that winning bid was VIP Dan Snyder, who finally did something right because, well, let's not get into all that. You can Google him yourself in your own time. Uh, he had the winning bid. Fellow VIP Michelle Mozzie, uh donated $25,000 on top of the winning bid for the cause. The other charity item was a 2022 Jeep Wrangler Unlimited Rubicon, um, which crossed the block with 100% of $125,000 hammer price which completely benefited the ronald mcdonald house charities of detroit to date barrett jackson has helped raise over 148 million dollars for charitable organizations pretty cool stuff really cool cars you can go look uh they have these on tv all the time on the motorsports channels my one daughter loves muscle car stuff uh it's always interesting watching them they're fast-paced there's a lot of people out there with a whole lot of money to spend on these things, though, because apparently, because they sure are raking in the dough. But it's going to a good cause, some more power to them. That'll do it for Hertel. Thank you so much for joining us on this Tuesday, July the 5th. Looking forward to Wednesday, July the 6th. Hope you'll join us right back here, whether you're listening on the podcast, watching on YouTube, Facebook, through our radio partner, Big Talker Live. However you're with us, we sure appreciate it. Make sure you're reaching out. Show at gmail.com. Show on the Twitter. Love to hear from you. Keep your bearing, but we would very much love to hear your thoughts, comments, epistles, whatever you got. So, until we talk to you again, wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. We'll talk to you again tomorrow for more Hurtel. All the music on Hurtel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com.